Okay, it's officially recording now. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited today to have my Stanford Law classmate and friend, Meghna, on today to talk a little bit about the current political situation in India and more specifically what's been happening around migration and denaturalization and the parallels between the Modi regime and... Did I pronounce that right? Yep. Okay. That's good. <laughs> And Trump. Um, yeah, so before diving in though, Megna, I just wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the listeners and then wanted to do a check-in, ask how you are and what your self-care is for this week. Hi guys, um, it's an honor to be on the podcast. Uh, it's obviously an amazing podcast and I'm very excited to share, I think, what's a really important geopolitical situation that sort of affects the entire world um, and that Indians are sort of desperate for the international community to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to be sharing stuff about that. A little bit of background about me. As Vet said, I went to Stanford Law with her. I'm a lawyer right now. I'm working in London. I'm an Indian citizen. And right now I'm feeling pretty politically helpless. It's mm. I think the left has been crumbling worldwide, but also in particular the three countries that I feel the most attached to, which is my home country of India, America, where I spent seven to eight years, mm. and the UK, where I'm living now. The patterns of how the left is collapsing and how sort of liberals are helping crush the left is so... Um, getting in the way of leftist goals. Yeah, and just the way that the patterns are so similar across all three countries, but in particular across the UK and the US, is quite upsetting. Because yeah. you feel like with the US elections, I'm just seeing the exact thing that happened two months ago in the UK repeat itself. And right. there's really nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I mean, I really hope that the US has a different political outcome to what happened in the UK. But right now, if all the signs are just pointing towards the exact same pattern. I know, it's just really horrific to feel like I'm living, I'm reliving 2016. Yep. <laughs> the that never leaves. And the that never leave either. <laughs> Megna, you did not say what your self-care was going to be this week <laughs> Oh, yes i just hanging a lot with my friends and people who I love Oh, that's really good That's really good Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited because later tonight I'm going to be doing the very first live Radio Cachimbona podcast show Oh, and my God Yes I don't know if you've heard of Rocky Rivera but She's a hip-hop artist And she did an intersectional feminist and the there's some grad students at the U of A who invited her to come to Tucson and she's going to perform and I'm going to be doing a little pre-show to her coming on and I'm going to be interviewing the students who invited her and talking about two of her songs Pussy Kills and Brown Babies. Oh, so wow, oh Yes, yes. I wish you weren't in London. Wish you could come through. This sounds amazing. If it's live, will it also be recorded? Or is it just you have to be there to listen to it? I'm going, so I am going to record the episode and the episode is going to go up. Yeah, and then I'm also, I'm going to try and arrange an Insta live, but that's TBD. I, that, it might not happen, but for sure, I'm going to record okay. the episode and then I'll, I'll record, I'll put up the episode so oh, people can I'm listen. Really excited. 
definitely yeah. going to listen to the episode and keeping my fingers Loki crossed for an Instagram live because that sounds amazing. You yeah. should do more live. That that would be a really great I feature. Know. I know, I know. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about get, having an intern to do stuff like that because now with the Patreon, I do have money that I can put towards this. So oh, that would I, think, be amazing. I think it's kind of like getting towards that time to to get an intern because because uh, yeah, I mean the show is so amazing and Rocky is such an amazing and inspiring artist and. I want to be able to share that with as many people as possible so yeah and like you were saying earlier sorry just wanted to plug this in as well but like like you were saying earlier I think it's really important for us to for women of color to reclaim the space of the left especially like partially because yeah. we don't want to concede it to white men but also there's so many accusations floating around about how socialism or leftism is just inherently white male and it's just so oh. horrifying yeah. and like the more voices out there to counter that I mean I, I don't know if it's a disingenuous smear that's never going to be countered but to the extent we can counter it by filling up the space so people should support your Patreon yes thank you yes no I totally agree I mean because I know that we've exchanged thoughts about quote-unquote dirtbag left and a lot of people who identify with that are white males. And it is very specific kind of quote-unquote analysis, very pessimistic and kind of alienating. Mm-hmm. And But they're getting so much support from Patreon. They're really, they're able to dedicate themselves, themselves I think, a lot more than I am because I yep, have yep. a full-time lawyer job. <laughs> and then I also do the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, you have to go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I want to be able to, do more to spend more of my time podcasting so the more that people donate to the patreon the more that that can actually be a reality and my self-care for this week is that i finally booked the massage that i've been talking about for the past three episodes yes <laughs> yes yes yes, yes it's happening tomorrow and that's going to be perfect that'll be the perfect thing to do after the show too because it is it's really fun but also I do have to be on like I've been taking notes and just kind of thinking about the show all day so I'm just excited to relax tomorrow yeah absolutely like being switched on for an hour two hours and recording this before that as well that's 100% (laughs) a lot of mental engagement I hope you can thank you yes a lot of mental engagement thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. please please switch off as much as you can like I hope there's relaxing music and good melts and good vibes yes yes I'm excited for the event because there's going to be other cool organizations there selling merch I don't know if you follow Thoughty Organizer on Instagram that sounds amazing I should <laughs> you Just should be a thought yeah <laughs> like thought yes a thought that we have <laughs> and then organizer thoughty organizer yeah she has really they have really cool shirts that say one of them one of my favorites says abolish dhs abolish yeah. ice abolish police yeah so they're gonna uh, be there. I just follow them yes yes <laughs> you'll like their content yeah and then lola rainey from the tucson second chance bail fund which is our local abolitionist bail fund that's associated with black lives matter is going to be there so it's just gonna it's like a really good group of people i'm excited oh that's really exciting yes i'm so happy i yeah i can't wait to listen and hear yes. updates and, and catch up on it yes 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 
I know I'm I'm sure this conversation is so different than what you talk about at the firm. <laughs> oh nobody's my like God. hey have you heard of seals by Rocky Rivera? <laughs> oh my god. I mean oh yeah, yes. <laughs> In short, yes. I'm feeling like slowly starved of all political engagement and also just the empathy that comes with political engagement as well it's just it's one thing to just talk to people who agree with you and have the same worldview and all of that what underlies your worldview and mine is just this fundamental sense of searching for empathy and justice and mm-hmm. when you don't see that in someone else it's just so alienating and bizarre yeah. it just makes you mm-hmm. and when you don't see that in a lot of someone else's like your whole community oh. it's it, it's yeah. Incredibly distressing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That that sounds really upsetting. Yeah. And I can picture exactly what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Enough about right. firm and the white people. Let's talk about India. Yes. Okay. So I wanted to ask if you could explain the historical context surrounding the currently around 4 million people who are stateless and living in India, and specifically in the Assam region. Yep. So so I think something that's sort of important to frame this entire discussion is that India's refugee laws and India's treatment of undocumented undocumented immigrants to the country is quite complex and quite unlike the system that we see in most well in the US in Europe mm-hmm. I'm not sure about the rest of the world but in essence the root of it is that India is not a signatory to the 1951 refugee convention no. and so it's not bound by most of the laws that right other countries see themselves as bound by and and that particular instance has a very interesting history because I think Nehru at the time thought that the 1951 refugee convention was actually anti-Soviet and so it was sort of a cold war era stand of not taking a side not signing the convention but but as a result of that I think India's treatment towards undocumented migrants at times can be quite generous because we have specific treaties and specific laws that respond to specific situations of displacement. So India takes in a lot of Tibetan migrants, for instance, takes in a lot of Sri Lankan Tamils, and it has like specific laws to do that. But India doesn't have a systemic policy on how to treat undocumented migrants, especially those who are claiming refugee status. And as a result of that, it's a hotbed for a statelessness crisis, basically. It, yeah. it lays the conditions out for if you declare anybody in India an undocumented migrant, you strip them of their citizenship, it doesn't leave them a lot of avenues to get citizenship because India's laws towards if you're an undocumented migrant are just so harsh. If you're if you have entered the country illegally or if you've overstayed your legal entry into India, there's before the citizen amendment the Citizenship Amendment Act, which we'll talk about later, there was just no path to citizenship. You couldn't yeah. become a citizen. There's no way to forgive that initial transgression of crossing the borders illegally or overstaying your legal visit. So so that's mm. kind of one background to it. The other it background... Like you have limitations in terms of legal relief, especially for people who entered without authorization. Yep, yep. Yeah, but even, I guess it would be even harsher than the US, right? Because there are paths towards still 
sort of claiming citizenship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like the family-based system. Yeah, yeah. And are there... I, I'm really behind on like yeah. what I remember from immigration law, but are there parts even without family pathway to sort of curing the fact that you entered? Ill- well, the one is obviously the refugee part. So if you enter the country yeah. mm-hmm. illegally, but you can. Although Trump has tried status. to stop that. Oh my like, god. That was like one. That was asylum ban one, as it's now been right. called. Right. But, yeah, which is that if you entered in between the ports of entry, you weren't eligible for asylum, which. It's completely illegal to say that. Yeah, it's a clear <laughs> violation of international yeah. law. Yeah. And it, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the, so it, it's almost as if leaders across the world are conspiring to yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, to, to create yeah. this interno- in, enormous international statelessness crisis. But yeah, um, the other yeah. piece of context to, to, I guess, what has now become the National Register of Citizens is Bangladesh and the fate of Assam bordering the country of Bangladesh. So Bangladesh was initially during the partition of India and uh, the independence of India and Pakistan. Bangladesh was a part of Pakistan. It was called East Pakistan at the time. And then it was in 1971 after a war of independence for Bangladesh when Bangladesh became its own country. Sort of that sort of began the trigger of events that led to a lot of Bangladeshis entering India, I mean, that border is quite porous anyway. Countries are so closely linked. At the time, there was a war. There was a lot of movement between people. And a war between Bangladesh and Pakistan obviously involves India in a very heavy capacity as the country between the two two warring nations. And so 1971 and all the events in its aftermath brought a lot of Bangladeshi migrants to Assam, many of whom were Muslim, but some of whom were not. And many of whom were undocumented, but again, some of whom were not. And then... That sort of triggered, you know, this this hotbed of a political crisis in Assam, which is an incredibly diverse state because it's it's one third Muslim. It's got, I think, the second highest mm-hmm. population of Muslims for any Indian state after Kashmir, which again is the probably the only state in India that's more in conflict than Assam right now. Well, mm-hmm. not a state of India, I should say. It, it's very hard to undo what you've been taught for 18 years in India because oh, it, right. it's. Uh, the really wild thing about it is, and obviously coming at it now, especially with the view and working in the conflict in Israel and Palestine, it, mm-hmm. it's just kind of shocking the first time I saw how the map of India looks when mm-hmm. it is published by anyone other than an Indian publisher. It, like, I just didn't realize that this was the shape of the borders of India that the rest of the world saw because I had spent 18 years looking at a completely different map of India. And if oh. you asked me to like picture a map of India in my head even now I would picture one that includes Kashmir because that's just what I've seen for 18 years and I wouldn't even know how to draw it with the occupied afflicted territory excluded because I just have not seen those maps yeah aside state propaganda aside but um but yeah so so the so the conflict in Assam is because it's a hotbed of there's one third Muslim population it's got the highest second highest Muslim population of any state after Kashmir there's a huge influx of migrants from Bangladesh there's also a huge scheduled tribe is what we call them a tribal communities in Assam and obviously tribal communities across India are incredibly persecuted their land rights are infringed upon mostly by neoliberal development. Their way of living has been threatened by sort of cultural expansion. 
and they face police brutality, they face disenfranchisement. So that's created a very politically unstable situation in Islam already. Mm-hmm. And it proved to be that, the perfect testing. Are those groups of people indigenous to that yeah. land? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They're the indigenous communities of that land. So that so they also come in this sort of intense political conflict that's you know it's it's I think a map of the situation that mirrors across mirrors across many parts of the world mm-hmm. where where intense poverty and disenfranchisement is addressed by a government that points to a set of undocumented migrants and sort of says this is the reason why and because Assam has such a huge population of migrants and possibly undocumented migrants that it, it just becomes a very easy way to it, it just becomes a really easy way for people to put the blame on the undocumented community and sort of engineer political enthusiasm for something as horrific as the NRC and so so the NRC had deep roots it was it first was, um, um first authored actually in 1951 so even before bangladesh there was just a register of citizens in assam which was even at the time with east pakistan faced situation of migrants and facing a situation of people coming across the border and things like that so so it was already quite a hotbed situation mm-hmm. the nrc then fell into disuse it sort of fell off the map it wasn't used following 1951 yes. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes. The National Register of Citizens is exactly what it sounds like. It's a list of people who the government considers valid citizens of India. So that's the basic premise of it. It changed its form in 2013, when 2013 to 2014, where our current government, the Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP, which is the Modi government, mm-hmm. came into power. Well, and then nationalist party, right? Yeah, they're Hindu nationalist party. So they follow the philosophy of Hindutva, which is a sort of call for a Hindu nation. And India is a secular nation. I think it maybe the history of it is lost on some people, but I think one of the most critical moments in the foundation of India was when was in 1947 when India and Pakistan decided to partition into two separate countries. Pakistan took the stance that it would be a theocracy, a Muslim theocracy. And mm-hmm. India did not take the counter stance that it would be a Hindu theocracy. It took a very deliberate stance that was reflected in its constitution, which is now being the preamble to which is now being read out in uh, protests all over the world. Because we actually okay. have quite a beautiful constitution, I think, and, and mm-hmm. quite a robust one compared to, say, the United States one. Mm-hmm. But our constitution cuts out quite clearly that we are a foreign, socialist, secular democratic republic um, and all of those five things are very important but yeah. in the name of the sovereign republic we've lost the democracy the secularism and and definitely the socialism but but yeah so it's foundationally very important for india to be a secular nation going back to the nrc sorry i think i went on a slight tangent there historical context too yep yeah, well, when the, so when the BJP returned to power in 2014, one of the items on their mandate was to implement the NRC first in Assam, and then, although this is now, they're now contesting it, to implement it all throughout India. And the new NRC would basically list, be a list of all the citizens of Assam who were considered valid citizens on 25th March 1971, which is the day before Bangladeshi independence. 
And then anybody who is excluded from that list of names would have to then, the burden of proof would be on them to prove that they were a citizen of India. Oh, and wow. and this would sort of trigger the massive statelessness crisis that happened yeah. in Assam in its wake because four million people were rendered stateless. It was chaotic. It was violent. Several people who were included on the list or even before the list came out sort of committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, yeah, yeah, the, the stress, I mean... The, the trauma and the stress of the yeah. list the and, and like waiting to see if your name was on that list was just, I mean, it was, it was horrifying, the yeah. results. Yeah. And, and yeah, so um, it, it created enormous amount of violence in its wake. It created, it triggered sort of a massive statelessness crisis. It's still sort of the, the repercussions of that statelessness crisis are still ringing on because because it, it's still ongoing. There's still foreigners tribunals which have been set up where people are trying to contest their legality, their citizenship, uh, trying to contest that they're valid valid citizens of the nation where they could have spent their entire life, where like generations could have spent right. generations of their family could have spent their entire life yeah, and facing familiar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think are these the specially formed courts that were created specifically to adjudicate this? Yep. So they're called the foreigners tribunals. There were a couple that were already in place and then more more tribunals have sort of been are are being set up to address the massive amount of people that need to be processed in them. And there I, I think you will be especially familiar with one of the key problems with this, which is it's like a quasi-judicial administrative court. Okay, I was going to ask about the setup and who's appointed as judges for these these decisions. Yeah, so these so these foreigners tribunals, I don't actually know the the composition of them. I just do know that they're quasi-judicial, they're administrative, so your rights under them are massively curbed. And right. so you have, you don't have sort of a right to a lawyer, you don't have a lot of the whole suite of rights you would have as a criminal defendant, which as you are very familiar with, is is yeah. a classic way in which immigration law is so uh, is so cruel and harsh in the United States is because you mm-hmm. face all the repercussions of being tried as a criminal without any of the protections. And so it's sort of a predetermined <laughs> criminality by yeah. participating in one. Yes. Yeah. And now District Court Judge in Tucson just said that the Border Patrol short-term detention centers are presumptively punitive. I think we're getting closer to being able to break apart this legal fiction that deportation isn't violence or that, sorry, that deportation isn't a criminal proceeding and, you know, that it's supposedly not punishment. And I mean, I I just hope that we're able to break that apart because that's the parallel that I'm seeing between the U.S. and India. It's like you said, by disguising this as a civil proceeding, one in which there's not as much at stake as when you're facing criminal trial and you're facing the loss of liberty. It's just kind of a narrow-minded way of thinking about loss of liberty. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I completely, yeah, yeah, it's just... I mean, it, yeah, it, it's just a view that's so completely divorced from reality and in a way that's like so mm-hmm. deliberately divorced from reality because you challenge it so easily by saying, you know what the consequences of deportation are. You know what the consequences right. of detainment are. Like, you know right. that this is not, this is just blatantly not an administrative procedure. This isn't a mm-hmm. administrative trial. This isn't a bureaucratic thing, but the cruelty yeah. is so sort of dis- 
so buried under the bureaucracy of it. it it's yeah, it, it's so hard to challenge and yet so apparent that it, it right. it's one of those things that makes you feel like you're living in in a dystopia basically. Yeah, yeah. But Definitely. yeah, it, it's yeah to to be forced to prove something that's so obvious is quite is quite distressing. So so yeah, so these yeah. foreigners tribunals are sort of the amnesty has described them as being riddled with bias mm. they have and and you know the people who are pulled up in these foreigner tribunals have anything between misspelled name you know right. they lost documents right. obviously there's a massive class issue in who's targeted mm. because right. the people who are most unable to provide real documentation going right. back thousands of years of people without stable homes people mm-hmm. had to move several times people who don't have the capacity to collect and keep documents in the same way that there's a blatant class mm-hmm. issue in who's targeted and uh, along with there being the obvious religious issue that underlies it and so you know how do you how do you when the system is so designed against you and you have to prove yourself in a tribunal that is also designed against you it's not it's not actually a way to redress the gaps in the NRC as much as it is a way to implement it, it mm. yeah administrative and immigration courts are designed to not protect people from immigration law, but sort of protect immigration law from people. Like, yeah. Most efficient machine to deport the most people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so that's sort of the NRC in Assam. And the when when the NRC first came up, obviously, I don't live in India now. And so it's quite hard for me do it's hard for me to fully tap into what the currents were but I didn't get the sense of and obviously there weren't these massive national protests when it first emerged in NRC I think everyone was quite distressed everyone who's sort of keeping an eye on these matters was quite distressed when they heard about the NRC and what it was doing but I think people were more questioning when and at what pace it would expand nationally and sort of become this national targeting and apartheid of Muslim citizens of India, as well as undocumented migrants, until I think the boiling point came in December last year when the Citizenship Amendment Act came out. Can you explain what that is, the Citizenship Amendment Act? So what I was saying earlier, right, about very specific historical instances where there are certain communities which we have given citizenship rights to or we've given refugee status to. So the perverse thing about the Citizenship Amendment Act and sort of the line that comes from the government and from the right wing media is that, no, actually, this is a really great law because it gives refugee status to a large amount of people. Like this is one of the most expansive acts of extending blanket refugee status to people, except Mm -hmm. One, the law itself is incredibly discriminatory, but then also two, if combined with the National Register of Citizens, either at the Assam level or a global level, it has an incredibly sinister implication. So the CAA basically says, if you are one of these six religions, which is Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Jain, Parsi, and Christian, Mm -hmm. and if you're from one of those three, three countries, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, then you have a clear path towards citizenship in India. You just have to say, you know, you just have to prove like I'm from Afghanistan, Bangladesh or Pakistan and I'm one of those six religions. And then you're automatically considered on the path to becoming a citizen of India as a refugee, Mm -hmm. which 
the government says and the right wing media says is this is incredibly positive and it also doesn't affect any citizens like this is a way for us to extend citizenship to other people it doesn't actually extend any citizens over here and the problems with that obviously is first of all it doesn't include muslims that goes again it goes against our fundamental constitutional principles whether it will actually be interpreted by the supreme court as being unconstitutional is a question that's up in the air because again as you know when you're when you're not a citizen your rights under the constitution are curbed mm-hmm. to such a degree and if if an argument is made that this only targets people who were never citizens in the first place then right. they don't you know, muslim non-citizens don't have the same right to equal protection under indian law as muslim citizens do and at the face of this law it doesn't target muslim citizens so you yeah. know what's the big deal so that's obviously the first thing it's just discriminatory on its face it's not who we are it's not or at least it's not who our constitution says who we are obviously what our history says we are is a different story but it's not what the law had intended to be but also if you consider the combination of a national register of citizens at an india wide level combined with the caa the national register will first declare a large number of people stateless and then the caa will come out and scoop out all of the non-muslims who are declared stateless by saying no it's fine you're still a citizen so what that leaves is a massive statelessness crisis that specifically targets muslims and that you know the implications of that are obvious like we will just be filling india with detention camps that are full of muslim citizens and non-citizens and who knows who's who because the idea is not because the laws don't seem to care the laws just seem to care about targeting whichever muslims stay in india right. and them and so it's it, it's quite clear what the combination of the two is the disputes right now is now the government i think in the face of massive protests is saying well we're not planning to expand it nationally who said that except they did several times and they're sort of they're sort of saying that you know there's no reason to link the ca and the nrc these are two completely separate things one is sort of a census one is a population register the other one is a sort of proactive way to get refugees citizenship status in india but but i think a lot of to a lot of legal scholars to a lot of the public to a lot of the media the connections are quite clear and the the scheme that's being laid out is quite clear and so it's a map towards a vision of india that's quite horrifying to all of us mm-hmm. so it was an effect of the nrc that muslim indians were stripped of their citizenship and is it true that that's been an ongoing thing then and this new caa has just contributed more to the confusion yeah well not the confusion as much as almost the clarity because i think one right. of the problems that happened from the nrc was that you know, the vision i guess of implementing the nrc was that you would pick up all of these bengali muslims or you'd pick up all of these muslims in general you put them in detention camps and you would sort of cleanse assam of of muslims and of undocumented migrants but the problem was a lot of the people who were list who were not on the citizenship list and therefore were considered undocumented migrants were were hindu and so that began a lot of pushback in assam where they said oh you know i thought this law was designed to target muslims i thought this law was designed to target undocumented migrants i'm a hindu why is it targeting me and so that's kind of the backlash that prompted the citizenship amendment act to come in because they were okay. like oh no 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 you can like completely segregate and like deport and detain all of these people but these protect the hindus and this is how it arose so in assam 
how what has historically been the access that Muslim Indians have to civic society voting or being able to access welfare from the government or being able to own property? What has been the general legal access that Muslim Indians have in Assam? So I don't know about the status of Assam specifically because I haven't studied a lot about Assam in particular. What I do know is that Muslim Indians across India have faced severe issues, which I think are probably reflect a great deal stronger in Assam, where, where it's a particular hotbed of a really you know, right-wing government in the state combined with a lot of political tensions in the state. But throughout India, Muslim Indians have a lot of trouble accessing housing, accessing facilities. I think a common sort of derogatory term for Muslim areas is like some ghettos or the ghettoization of Muslims. Mm -hmm. That's because there's, it's almost an accepted fact that in most places, including the most urbanized, wealthy, bougie places in Delhi and Bombay, the two financial hub, the capital and the biggest financial hub, it's almost impossible to find housing as a Muslim. Countless, this I know both anecdotally and then from from systemic documentation, but one of the first things that a landlord or a residency welfare association or any sort of community asks is like, are you Muslim? And mm. or yeah, either ask and I don't even think it's it's couched in anything. I mean there's a lot of right. ways to couch like do you eat non-vegetarian, do you eat pork, yeah. all of these things, do you eat beef, all all of these ways of sort of segregating out Muslims. But I think at this point in India you just can't get housing in wow. anywhere other than Muslim heavier areas if you're Muslim. So then that that's one aspect of it. Obviously, there's a huge amount of impoverishment. There's difficulty in accessing jobs, difficulty in accessing sort of welfare and benefits. Mm -hmm. there, there's a whole other kind of worms that comes with that because, and it's sort of linked to the whole thing, which is that we've started in rolling out a biometric identification system where each citizen is issued an ID card. And without that ID card, you can't access anything from a bank account to a phone number, schools to college admissions, giving nationalized exams, uh, a lot of essential services, including like also basic welfare services, food, access to benefits, all of those things are all connected to this one biometric form of identification that you can only get as a citizen. And so mm -hmm. that's already yeah. messed up on several levels, yeah. but then it's further messed up by the looming prospect of statelessness. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that the UN Commissioner for Human Rights has challenged the CAA at the Indian Supreme Court, and a response from the Indian government has been that this is an internal issue. What is your response to that? I mean, it's, it's clearly an issue that implicates international law and we may not be a signatory to the 1951 refugee convention but we are a signatory to the most essential sort of protections for human rights that we have like the ICCPR and the international convention for Pro protection of um, economic social uh, economic and social rights and so mm -hmm. we are clearly a party to several international treaties that lay out the basic principles of how we must treat our citizens and what relationship that we should have to people who are living in India. Mm -hmm. And and that is unquestionably an international issue. It's not an internal issue for a country to systemically target a part of its population and to detain it, to starve it, to commit what could eventually amount to crimes against humanity. Right. Um, what could it, it eventually amount to, you know, apartheid and genocide and all of these international issues 
And so it's quite ludicrous to say that it is an internal issue. I mean, India, like many countries, like the United States, has always taken reservations to when it becomes party to international treaties by saying our laws take precedence, our internal issues take Mm -hmm. precedence. Mm -hmm. And so legally, you know, there's, it, it it might be that the United Nations doesn't have the technical standing to present this as an issue in Indian courts. But mm-hmm. to say, but but it's clear that where the court is coming from and where the government is coming from is not a place of technical legal correctness. It's coming from mm-hmm. a place trying to establish that the internal norms of a country supersede sort of the universal norms of justice that the world has all agreed on post-World War II. And I think right. it's a sign huh. of like this erosion yeah, it's classic human rights dilemma, the tension between the importance, quote unquote, of national sovereignty and people, you know, a country being able to regulate itself versus being under the oversight of these human rights bodies. Yep. And I think the worst part about the sovereignty thing is that the refugee issues of refugee rights and migrant rights like strike at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the police like it's it's this gaping hole in international law where when when international human rights was sort of developed and was growing in in post world in the post world war scenario like there was so much emphasis on a country's sovereignty mm-hmm. and and we thought that the refugee convention will still like give people rights when they are stateless or when they're trying to leave their country but the emphasis on sovereignty is just so dangerous because yeah that how the most crimes are perpetuated today because the worst crises that face the world today are to do with immigration and migrant crisis crises yeah. Yeah. and so yeah basically borders are bullshit yeah, but, yeah but it is really dangerous that we emphasize not us but you know international law emphasizes the sovereignty of a nation so much right right So I do need to end the conversation, but I wanted to ask one more question and also say that I think we should record a part two because we really haven't even started getting into everything. Yes, yes, yes. the protests. And the, yeah, exactly. And the yeah. Exactly, yes. But I wanted to ask you if detention and deportation has increased under the Modi regime. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the NRC is just, is the first systemic step towards that. And so it's already been such a dangerous situation. I think it's already been a situation where we we don't have robust protections for people who right. enter the country without proper documentation. We, we don't offer them a path to citizenship. We don't even offer them a path mm. to being refugees. And so we've mm. always had a really dangerous situation with respect to how many detentions and deportations happen but it's growing at an unprecedented rate I mean the crisis in Assam alone brought like a million people under a crisis of statelessness but it has also come side by side with um, a growing list of detention centers so we're building more detention centers yeah so we're massively expanding detention centers I think we've built one or we're building one that's like can accommodate up to a thousand people and so um, yeah yeah, so I mean, huge. yep, I mean, it, they're cap- like the 
I, one of the biggest chants in India is that we're drawing comparisons to the Holocaust because mm, the mm-hmm. whole idea about being educated about the Holocaust is just right. the science of it repeating itself. And so I never yeah. understood this sort of never weird, again. Yeah, and a weird mentality in the US and elsewhere about like compare things to the Holocaust. It's disrespectful right. and like, right. no, like the Holocaust, we learn about it so that we can compare things to it so that we can know when we're fucking up and when we're getting to the point of it like becoming terrible again. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah. So incredibly yeah. horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. coming on and doing this little intro. Like I said, we're going to have to do part two, so I'll be in touch yep. about that. Yep. And in the meantime, I hope everyone enjoyed. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so um, I'm so happy to draw light on this issue. It's really yeah. good to talk to you, especially yeah. with your expertise in immigration law and understanding the patterns that these things take. So mm-hmm. it was amazing. And I hope that you crush it on your show today. Oh, thank you. Okay. Oh, <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.